Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Do not trust in princes, in mortal men, in whom there is no salvation. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them who keeps faith forever. And with that, let us take our Trinity hymn books, the Trinity hymn book, turning to 149, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come. 149 Trinity hymn books. Amen. Will you continue standing with me as we uh, approach his throne in prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that 
you do rule the nations through your Son who is exalted and seated on the throne at your right hand. We thank you that Jesus Christ, who has come in the flesh, been born of a virgin, lived sinlessly, died vicariously, and risen victoriously, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And we who were once slaves under the curse have tasted freedom in him. We thank you that uh, we can approach your throne clothed with the beauty and the splendor of the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, today our worship is acceptable to you because you accept us in him. So we pray that we would come, we would confess our sins, but we would confess them in such a way that we are confident that we're forgiven through a father who has given his only begotten son for us. We ask you to bless our time together. Give us ears to hear your word, hearts to receive your word. We pray that your, sp- your spirit would move in a mighty way this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The Christmas story is truly a story about God humbling himself and being made in the likeness of man. Hymn number 158 in your Trinity hymn book speaks about the humility of our Lord. It's perhaps not one of the more familiar Christmas songs, but it speaks about Christ humbling himself and coming to earth. So let us sing this hymn together, hymn 158. I'll ask Rachel if you'll just play it through once completely, and then we will sing it together.
consecutive reading through the New Testament this morning, we come to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I'll be reading and you're hearing the first 27 verses. And in these verses, we are reminded that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He's the one that takes the wrath that we deserve. It falls upon the one who did not deserve it for our sakes. And so we will read here about the betrayal of Judas and even the denial of Peter as our Lord prepares to go to the cross fully aware of all that is about to take place. Will you follow along as we read together John chapter 18, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, And the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I am he, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you, that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost no one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into your sheath. The cup which the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Again, a reminder that Christ going to the cross was voluntarily. He did not, he was not forced. He didn't have a choice. He simply speaks and they fall to the ground. What more could he do? But he knew he had to drink the cup of wrath. For his people. Verse 12 So the Roman cohort and commanders and the officers of the Jew arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father in law, for he was father in law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that he was expedient for one man to die, that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, 
not a disciple known to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then a slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue and in the temples where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I have spoke to them. They know what I have said. And when he had said this, one of the officials standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of wrong. But if, I, but if rightly, why do you strike me? And Annas went to him bound and Anna sent him bound to Cleopas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing, warning, warming himself. And so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And then Peter denied it again. And immediately the rooster crowed. Let us again seek our God together in prayer. This morning we want to especially remember Ho Jun Jang in South Korea, who's in the midst of a church plant ministry there in South Korea. So let us seek our God together in prayer. <clears throat> oh, Father, as we have heard your word read this morning, we are reminded of how important it is that we walk humbly with our God. We thank you for the example of our Savior who came into this world, God in the flesh, and he humbled himself and was made in the likeness of man. We thank you that he was willing to die. And to even die the death of the cross. That, that through him we might have life and have it abundantly. How we give you thanks that he was willing to drink the cup of wrath. Every last drop for his people that they might know the forgiveness of sin and that we might know what it is to be reconciled to our God because the one who knew no sin became sin for us. 
And Father, we pray that we might proclaim that gospel in our communities and as we have opportunity around the world. For Father, it is the only way by which men can be saved is in the message of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so may we not be ashamed, but may we proclaim it to the end that others would be added to the kingdom of God through faith and repentance. So Father, we pray that this day as your word goes forth, that you would so bless and open blind eyes and open deaf ears that many might bow at the feet of Jesus Christ and believe upon him. We pray that for here and we pray that wherever your word is preached, locally and around the world. We thank you for men like Ho Jun, who's willing to go to South Korea and see churches planted. And Father, how we pray that you'll continue to give that young man boldness in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how we pray that in days to come, we might rejoice with them in seeing a core of people raised up that would then constitute a church and then seek to be faithful to all their responsibilities as being a community of believers that have been brought together. Father, we pray you'd bless the opportunity that he has to be on the radio. And we pray that even during those short, brief spots on the radio, that you'll use that to perhaps bring others to yourself and then to be a part of that core group of people. We think of the Christmas concert that they're going to have there in their yard and, and pray that the weather would be good and that, Father, you would bless and that even through that, you would bring in people who would be a part of that congregation. And so, Father, we long to see a church birth there, and, and we pray that you would continue to use Ho June to that end. Father, again, we pray that you would draw near to us. We thank you for Micah, and we pray that as your word is opened in this place, that you would give him boldness, give him clarity, and Father, use him and your spirit and your word to minister unto us draw us ever closer to you. And so give him strength and help as he proclaims your word. For all these things, we ask in your son's blessed name. Amen. Now before Micah comes to open the word of God, take your hymns of grace, your hymns of grace, and turn to 388. He will hold me fast. 388.
be seated. If you'd open your Bibles with me to the first epistle of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. There's going to be a little bit of a correction in your bulletin this morning. Originally I planned on preaching uh, through verses 4 and 5 and focusing in on verse 5, but I realized later on uh, in the week that I thought verses 5 through 9 really needed to be taken as a unit. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Peter, as we talked about in the last sermon, he's describing the security of the believer's inheritance. Uh, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So let's actually read verses 3 through 9 together so we can get a taste for the whole thought, and then we'll focus in on 5 through 9 in our time together. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it, test, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come before you today and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because of this great, marvelous reality that Christ himself is ours and we are his and we're secure in him. We pr I pray that uh, as the word is unfolded to your people this morning that you would cause them to glory in and rejoice in Christ no matter what we have going on in our lives this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, the last sermon in this series explored our security in Christ, but explored it through the lens of the better inheritance that we have in Christ than Old Covenant believers had in the physical land of Canaan. If you remember, well, verse 4 says that we, we uh, have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And if you remember what was said in the last sermon, you remember that Peter can describe this inheritance with those adjectives, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, because the inheritance that we have is built on a better covenant with better promises than they had in the old covenant. Remember, they could forfeit their inheritance through their disobedience, uh, they could lose their possessions in the land of Canaan. Babylon could come in and tear down the temple and wipe everyone out and carry off their most noble people to the land of Babylon and their inheritance would be lost to certain generations. That was an inheritance that was perishable, 
That was an inheritance that was defilable. That was an inheritance because it was physical, earthly things promised with that inheritance. That was an inheritance that could fade away. But ultimately, last time we saw that our inheritance is secure because it's built on the foundation of better promises. The covenant of peace made between God and his people. Where now, our inheritance is no longer predicated or... um, no longer predicated or received through our obedience or disobedience. Our inheritance is received through the obedience of Jesus Christ in our place. And that received by faith. We embrace Christ by faith. Therefore, we have this covenant of peace which is unbreakable and gives us an inheritance that we cannot lose. That was what we explored last time about this better covenant with this better inheritance. But at the end of all that, you might be left with this idea that, okay, well, if it's founded on such a covenant of peace, and if this covenant of peace is so unconditional, where God just gives us this inheritance based on the work of Jesus Christ and nothing else, and if it is received by faith on our part and by nothing else, then Why are there all these different places in the New Testament where threats are issued that if we are disobedient, we won't inherit the kingdom? You might might have had rattling around in your mind texts like Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. What is the distinction between the sheep and the goats? The sheep obeyed and the goats did not obey. That's the the distinction that is brought out by the words of Jesus to both groups. Then you have texts as well, like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says he lists a series of vices, and then he says that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So you might have the objection in your mind that if our inheritance is so unconditional, if our inheritance is so secure, if it's just received by faith and if it's Christ that earns it by his obedience, then how come we have all these warnings? How come we have all these warnings against disobedience? How come we have all these warnings that, hey, you won't receive the inheritance if you walk in unrepentant rebellion like this? Could it be that after being justified by faith, now it's, us to, oh, it's up to us to obey enough so that we come to the last day and receive our inheritance? Surely that can't be the case. I mean, not to bury the lead too much here, but that's not the gospel. So how do we make these two things fit? How do these two things, the need for the believer's obedience and justification and salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, how do those Two things jive together. Well, just in short, our works are evidence. They're not, the, they're not the instrument or the ground by which we receive the inheritance. The ground is the work of Christ. Uh, the instrument is faith by which we appropriate the work of Christ. And then works are evidence that flows out of that, just to sort of take the tension out of it. But what I want us to see is that if, if our inheritance or if our salvation on the last day were up to our, you know, our obedience, if our obedience were factored into that equation, 
whether we will receive the inheritance one day or whether we won't receive the inheritance, we would lose all basis for any assurance of salvation. Your assurance would be absolutely gone if you thought, I have to be sure that I obey enough so that I inherit. And that's Peter's point in this first chapter of this epistle to these churches in Asia Minor. He's trying to cultivate such an assurance of the grace of the gospel in these people that it produces holy lives, that it produces perseverance in the faith. He wants them to be so assured of their security in Christ that a holy lifestyle flows out of that, not the other way around. So we're going to see the means by which Peter says we come into possession of the inheritance today. And what I think Peter proves to us is this. Peter shows us that salvation being by faith alone, from first to last, from the moment that you're converted up until the end where the Lord brings you home or the Lord comes again in glory. Salvation being by faith alone from first to last is maximally glorifying to Christ and maximally assuring to us. And then out of that flows all the fruit of holiness in our lives. But it's in that order. And I think that's what Peter's, that's, Peter at least illustrates that in this chapter. So, first point, salvation by faith alone from first to last. Peter gives us an inescapably eschatological view of the Christian life. And he's not the only author in the New Testament that does this. All the authors in the New Testament, they they urge us to faith in Jesus. They urge us to holy living. They urge us to, to faithfulness no matter what the world throws at us. And so often across the whole New Testament, it's in light of the soon return of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is painted in an inescapably eschatological view. It's painted in light of the end. Just to give you a taste of this in 1 Peter, look at verse 4 of chapter 1. We're born again to an inheritance. That is is an inherently end times word. An inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Then a location. Kept where? Not here, but in heaven. It's eschatological. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at what? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the revealing of, of Christ from heaven in power and glory. That's the last day. Peter paints our faith in this chapter in light of the soon second coming of Christ. This isn't the only chapter that he does it in, though. Uh, Just to sort of give you a flyover. uh, Chapter 1, verse 13, he's encouraging us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This hope is just faith pointed at the future. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you on the last day. Chapter 2, verse 12, he makes it clear that good deeds glorify God on the day of visitation. Day of visitation of whom? Of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 5. He refers to Jesus as the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Ready, standing at the door. 
Almost here. Chapter 4, verse 7 says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we're supposed to be sober-minded. We're supposed to watch how we walk in the world. Chapter 4, verse 13. He says that he encourages us that we'll share in his glory when he is revealed. That's that revealing term again. Then chapter 5, faithful under-shepherds, pastors, are, according to Peter, promised the unfading crown of glory when Christ appears. So in every chapter, but that's, that's what's interesting, in every chapter besides chapter 3, Peter makes some kind of explicit or implicit reference to the second coming of Christ. So this church's whole faithfulness, this church's whole life, is being painted in light of the end, of the salvation that will be brought to them on the last day. So for Peter, there's clearly a future aspect to our redemption. There's clearly a future aspect to salvation. Yes, we are justified now. Yes, we are converted now. Yes, we have been given an inheritance now. But there's a future aspect to all of that when we will be publicly vindicated on the last day at the final judgment, publicly vindicated. We will actually receive the inheritance that we've come into to take possession of now. We'll be glorified, which is really just the end of the process of of conversion will be transformed finally into the total likeness of Christ. So there's all these future blessings of the gospel that are awaiting the people of God. So Peter sees a clear future aspect to our salvation. And in fact, this is illustrated when you compare verses 5 and 7. Verses 5 and 7, he says that there's a salvation which is ready to be revealed. And that salvation that is ready to be revealed is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Public praise, glory, and honor belonging to him on that day. So it's a glorious truth that the Christian life is one lived at the end of all things. As a Christian, your life is inescapably focused and pointed at the end. Do you live your life like that? Do you live your life expecting and longing for the soon coming of Christ? Because Peter is trying to cultivate that hope in these congregations. Because that's the day of our final deliverance. No matter where we are in the world or no matter what is happening to our churches, the day of final deliverance is the second coming of Christ. This is a glorious, sobering reality that any moment the glory of Jesus Christ could be unveiled from heaven. And Peter wants us to live in the hope of that. But that uh, evokes the question that I started out in the introduction with. How do we attain to the salvation of the last day? Is it by a different method than we attained salvation when we were first converted? Is the salvation on the last day different than the salvation that we had when we were first converted. And this is, a, this is a real problem. It may seem obvious to you, but it's not obvious to everybody. There are lots of preachers out there who teach things, like I'll just name a couple of them, like final justification based on works. There are so many false gospels out there. There are people who teach, teach things like you're justified by faith now, but you're justified at the final judgment by God based on your works. 
Is that the gospel of grace, though? Is that the gospel of grace that one day, if you're good enough, you know, I know you're justified by faith, declared righteous now, but one day, if you're good enough, if you obey enough, at the final judgment, God will declare you righteous based on your works factored into that consideration. What does that say about the holiness of God if that were the case? The the God who will accept nothing but spotless, pure righteousness. If he's accepting our works, then that's a degradation not only of his holiness, but it's also a degradation of the gospel. There's a popular evangelical preacher who once famously said, you're justified by faith alone, but we don't get to heaven by faith alone. This is, a, this is a preacher that I think is really good in a lot of other areas. This was a miss, though. Because I think what's being missed in that statement is you don't get to heaven by a faith that remains alone or a dead faith that doesn't produce works, but you do get to heaven by faith alone because salvation is by faith from first to last. In other words, your works are not the means by which you receive the inheritance, but they're the fruit of the inheritance received. And they're a public vindication of the validity of your faith on the last day. But that's such a deceiving statement to make. As if our works are factored into our right relationship with God on the last day. So in other words, because there are clearly present and future blessings of the gospel... And because Christians live in this already and not yet reality where we've received the blessings of the gospel, but there are still blessings of the gospel that will be received in the future. There's a present salvation and a future salvation. And because faith without works is dead and anyone who keeps on living in unrepentant rebellion won't receive the kingdom, we're prone to think that the instruments by which we take hold of the present and future blessings of the gospel are different things. We're, we tend to divide these things. Like I have the grace of God now, but on the last day it will be based on my performance. It's as if we're in Christ by grace through faith, but you have to get to the destination by works. But that is decidedly not what Peter teaches in this chapter as he's trying to encourage the saints in Asia Minor to assurance of their salvation. Yes, on the last day. Look at verse 4. We have this inheritance, inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the inheritance is kept, it's sure, it's secure. And then verse 5, who by God's power, so the power of God is the effective agent in this whole thing, who by God's power are being guarded through what? Through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the instrument by which we receive salvation both now and in the future is faith and faith in Jesus Christ alone. it It is God who is protecting you by enabling you to exercise this instrument of faith by which you take hold of Christ. God is protecting us for this. So... The fact that even on the last day, it is faith alone and Christ alone should build massive assurance in us. And why is that? 
Well, it should build assurance in us because of what faith does, both now and in the future. It builds assurance in us because of the nature of faith and what faith is and the reason that faith is the instrument of our salvation both now and in the future. And I think this is demonstrated pretty clearly in John chapter 1. Turn, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. is talking about the word who was made flesh and sent to his own people and his own people did not receive him. And he says, but to all who did receive him, who what? Believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the very act of faith is the what? It's the reception of Jesus Christ to those who did receive him. Faith is by its very nature, by its very constitution, a looking to and a receiving of Jesus Christ. The very act of faith is the reception of Jesus Christ and all of his gospel work so that it results in what here? It results in our adoption as sons of God. So there's this forensic declaration, there's this legal declaration that you are now a son of God based on what? On faith. This is a legal declaration that what is Christ's by right is now yours by faith alone. Jesus Christ is the Son of God by right. By faith, we take hold of the Son of God, we receive the Son of God, and we're declared to be sons of God in the courtroom of God's law and to have a right to everything that is His. So faith, the fact that our salvation is by faith alone, produces assurance because it is by its very nature a receiving of Jesus Christ in our place and everything that belongs to Him. Then, but you might say to that, well, I thought we were talking about future salvation because John is talking there about the moment of conversion. Well, okay. But Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, uses adoption again. But he uses it with reference to the future. He says, not only, Romans 8, 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, you're an adopted son of God now with all of the rights and privileges of sonship. But one day what was promised on your adoption papers will be realized and manifested bodily for all to see in your glorification as you're finally conformed into the image of Christ in your resurrection. But both aspects of these things are based on faith which is resting in and receiving the one who is God's natural, eternal, only begotten son. And this is why faith is the only act of the soul that is actually worthy of being the instrument of salvation. Because it's the only act by which I take hold of Christ himself. There's no other... There's no other act of obedience, there's no other work on your behalf, there's no other thing that you can do that is, that is the same as faith in regard to that. Faith 
And faith alone is a receiving of something outside of yourself. It's saying, I rest on Jesus Christ. No, no other work of obedience is the same by nature as that. That's why salvation now and in the future has to be by faith alone. But look at what Peter says about this faith that receives salvation on the last day. Turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 1. He says in verse 5, we're guarded by faith, or being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. But he also says that this is this builds our assurance in a peculiar way, or he, he implies that this builds our assurance in a peculiar way, and that faith must be the instrument of salvation, because faith is the only work or act of the soul that inherently glorifies Christ. Faith glorifies Christ. And, he glor- and it glorifies Christ in two ways in verses 6, six and 7. So he, say, he says in verse 5, you're, we're guarded by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then in verses 6 and 7 he says, in this... In this faith, the fact that you are guarded by this faith for a salvation that is yours and is going to be revealed, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the fact that faith is the instrument peculiarly glorifies Christ on the last day. That tested, genuine faith, that faith that perseveres through everything that the world might throw at it, through any persecution, through martyrdom even, that faith at the return of Christ, the fact that that is the instrument by which we are even saved on the last day, is peculiarly glorifying to Jesus. And it's glorifying to him in two ways. Peter's point is that genuine faith glorifies Christ because it is precious and imperishable. These are the two realities that, about faith that are uniquely glorifying to Christ. First, faith is precious, or uh, faith is precious, more valuable than gold, and therefore glorifying to Christ. Because it is the only act of the soul which is a declaration of what I am not and what Christ is for me. There's no other act of the soul that is inherently that. It's a declaration of my own emptiness in Christ's worthiness. No work of love amounts to that. Faith is saying, I am, I am empty, I am broken, I am depraved, but Christ is whole and righteous and worthy of my faith. He's, he's the one who is worthy of the reward. And I must att- obtain it through him. And I think that there's a couple of places in Scripture that this, is, that this aspect of faith is demonstrated. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This is the parable of the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee. <clears throat> Luke 
the, the, yep, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And I think we see the essence of true faith in this parable as it's contrasted with the Pharisee's self-righteousness. 18, verse 9. And so he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then look what Jesus says in John chapter in uh, in Luke eighteen fourteen. I tell you this: this man went to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why is faith glorifying to Christ? Because this is what faith is. It's not an exaltation of the self. It is an exaltation of who Christ is for yourself. It's not even being able to lift up your eyes to heaven, but saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a declaration of your bankruptcy. That's saving faith. It's a declaration of your bankruptcy and fleeing to Christ, who's your only hope. And then Jesus gives another parable along these lines in Luke chapter 23. Turn me over a couple of pages to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39. Luke 23. <clears throat> oh, no, it's not a parable. This is, the, this is the crucifixion of Christ. It's the, the thief on the cross that's hanging next to Jesus. And we see the essence of saving faith, even in this man who was previously mocking Christ. And we see also how it's glorifying to Jesus. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you, not, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, a declaration of his own insufficiency, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong a declaration of Christ's righteousness. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A declaration that Jesus is the Messiah who is worthy of inheriting the kingdom based on his own righteousness. And then verse 43, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross was brought into his inheritance by no works of his own, just a declaration of his emptiness and Christ's sufficiency. That's what saving faith is. Faith justifies because it, of not anything in and of itself, but because of the one it takes hold of. <clears throat> Justifying, salvation-appropriating faith is not valuable or precious because of any obedience inherent in the act of faith, but because faith is inherently a looking outside of ourselves to the one who is precious and valuable. And that is why faith, uh, 
That is why faith alone is also the instrument of our salvation on the last day because he intends to get the glory by people who are simply trusting in him who have done nothing to earn their salvation even up to the last day except trust in him. This truth, this truth is the, is, illustrates the fact or it declares the fact that Christ alone will be exalted on the last day. If your works played a role in your in your final salvation, there will be some ground for boasting. Christ alone will be exalted on that day and every other day of the Christian life. But the second reason that the second reason that faith justification by faith alone, salvation by faith alone is peculiarly Christ-exalting, peculiarly glorifying to Jesus, is because this faith is imperishable. Look what he says in verses 7 through, uh, 7 through, or, excuse me, sorry, 5 through 7 again. Who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, so genuine faith, not false faith, proven by trials, so that the tested, genuine fa- tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So not only is faith precious because it takes hold of Jesus Christ, it is also glorifying to Christ because it is imperishable. And why is it imperishable? Look at the connection between verse 3 and verse 5 here. Verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, first of all, faith is imperishable because faith is the gift of God that is granted in regeneration. The moment that you were united to Jesus Christ by the indwelling Spirit of God, there was a principle of grace worked in your heart that ultimately, immediately produced faith in Christ by which you were saved. So, it is imperishable because it is the gift of God and the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. But also it's imperishable because it's the instrument by which God is protecting you for the salvation that is coming on the last day. Verse 5, guarded through faith by the power of God. So faith is both inspired and God-given in verse because of the connection of verses 3 and 5, but also it is the means by which He Himself is exerting his power to protect you for the deliverance of the last day. Faith is the shield which God has put, by which God has put you under a protective guard. And I thought of this illustration. When, the president, when someone is inaugurated into public office, specifically the presidency, he's immediately put under protective guard by uh, the Secret Service. And they're charged with protecting the president and not only to protect him from threats without, threats from outside of him, 
but they're also charged to ensure that harm doesn't come to him by his own actions. It's similar to how uh, in the first century uh, guards of prisoners would be charged with, uh, essentially charged with the, the, the protection of their prisoners. When Paul was put under prison guard, serious consequences would have come to that guard if anything were to happen to Paul, either from attack without or by him doing something to harm himself. Well, what's interesting about this is that this word guarded is exactly the same New Testament word that it says Paul, when, when Paul was put under guard in the book of Acts. So the image that we begin to get from God guarding us through this faith is that it's the instrument by which God is keeping us secure so no one can pluck us out of his hand either from without, not Satan, not the world, but you also can't pluck him out. You also can't pluck yourself out of his hand from within you because it is him that granted you this faith in the first place and it is his power that wields this faith in your life. It's by God's grace tomorrow that you will wake up believing in Jesus. It is by God's grace you will finish your life, you'll finish the race of faith still trusting in Christ. And you can't run out of it because it is God that is supplying the strength to continue believing the gospel, to continue taking hold of Christ as your only hope every single day. So faith is glorifying to Christ because it is the imperishable means by which he ensures that those are his receive every blessing of the gospel even to the last day. On the last day, not only will Christ get all the glory through your faith, or because it is precious, because faith takes hold of Christ, but he will get all the glory for your faith as well, because it was granted by him. He secured your faith in his death and resurrection. So he gets all the glory through our faith, and on the last day, he gets all the glory for our faith. And the last point is faith assures us, faith assures us of our certain salvation. Look at verse 6 with me. Peter says something interesting here. Even though this is a people who is suffering immensely at this time, he says, in this you rejoice. Because they're being guarded through faith for a salvation or a deliverance from all their enemies, even from the bondage of their own flesh, because they're being guarded through faith for that last day, which is the revealing of Christ, he says, in this you rejoice. What does God's guarding through faith produce? It produces rejoicing. And not just any rejoicing, but supernatural, otherworldly rejoicing, even in the midst of the most intense affliction. This can only be a product of the assurance that Christ himself is yours. Rejoicing doesn't come from a heart of uncertainty. Rejoicing comes from the absolute certainty that Christ is yours because you're resting on him by faith and by faith alone. Christ is yours. It's the product of knowing that Christ is yours and he isn't going anywhere. And this is really the, this is the tragedy of legalism. 
Because legalism, which thinks I've got to get to the last day and I've got to enter into my inheritance based on my works, it can produce straight-laced people. Trying to earn your salvation can produce straight-laced people. It can produce people that sit in church every single day, every single Sunday. It can produce people that come to prayer meeting. It can produce people that live very upstanding lives. But you know what legalism can't produce? It cannot produce a heart that rejoices in Christ, even in the midst of affliction. It cannot produce such a heart that glories so heavily in Jesus that it doesn't matter what's happening to me, I know that I have Christ and that's all that matters. Legalism can't do that. Only assurance of the gospel can do that. And then, if you think about the fruit of faith, what's also, there's an irony to legalism too. Because ultimately, because legalism can't produce a heart that loves Christ, because legalism can't produce a heart that rejoices in Christ, legalism can't even produce the kind of obedience that it is trusting in for its right standing with God. Because true obedience only comes from a heart that loves Christ, born out of the grace of the gospel. So legalism is not only tragic, it's also ironic. In that way, legalism is actually antinomianism. It's anti-law. It's anti-obedience because it doesn't flow out of a heart that truly loves Christ because an assurance of gospel grace. Only faith, taking hold of Christ with a sense of the security of our hope in Him, can produce what 1 Peter 1 verses 8 and 9 say. Let's read this together. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining what? The outcome of your faith, the salvation. On the last day, the salvation of your souls. Only faith, only assurance of Christ can produce inexpressible joy, love for Christ, and filled with with glory. So I would ask you this morning, when you tr- try to obey God, what's your motivation for that? When you think about the last day, and you think about standing before God, is there, is there anywhere in your heart that is thinking you have to stand before God based on your own works? Because not only is that not the gospel, Not only do you not receive that final salvation by your own works, but if that's your your way of thinking about the Christian life, you won't even produce the kind of faith-filled, assurance-born, joy-saturated obedience that Peter is talking about here. The only way to truly live the Christian life, the only way to truly run the race, is to run it expecting to receive by faith, the grace of Jesus Christ on the last day because Christ and all of his righteousness are ours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom of the grace of the gospel. And because your grace was so costly to Jesus but so received so freely by us, I pray that we would truly obey you
out of a heart that loves Christ, out of a heart that rejoices in Christ. I pray that we would even be encouraged to exact obedience. I pray that we would be encouraged to fervent obedience that your word requires, but an obedience that is only born out of a heart that truly loves you because it's assured that you are ours. Pray that your spirit would uh, go with us and continue to apply this word to our hearts as we leave this place. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd uh, stand with me for our last hymn, it's going to be Trinity number 186. Trinity number 186, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.
We'd like to, if you're visiting, invite you to stay with us for lunch. We're having lunch immediately after the first service, and we'll be back to worship, continue worshiping the Lord at 1:45. You're dismissed.